Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer of the show, Colin Morgan, and today on the podcast, John is joined by Mark Wright, who won the UK's version of The Apprentice in 2014, along with it, a $250,000 check and 50-50 partnership with business mogul Lord Sugar. He took that investment and built one of the largest digital agencies in the UK before selling it in 2022 for nine and a half times EBITDA. But before we get there, I found a couple great clips of Mark on the show, specifically the final pitch he delivered, which won him the show, and then a second clip of Lord Sugar picking the winner, Mark Wright. And I have linked to both of those videos over in the show notes section, which can be found at built to sell. Com. Special thanks to Kevin Brent, who nominated Mark to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio. So thank you, Kevin, so much for the nomination. If you want to nominate someone, you're listening to this, you know of an entrepreneur who recently sold their company or yourself, and you want to be a guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can actually head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you'll have a chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Now, as I mentioned, Mark built one of the largest digital agencies in the UK, over 130 employees, millions of dollars in revenue before selling it in 2022. But as you're listening to today's episode, there's a few things I want you to look out for. One is how to leverage connections to grow your company, how to use a bold negotiation strategy to get the upper hand over an acquirer, how to build a self-managing business, how to recruit the most suitable and best talent for your team, how to minimize churn by gaining deeper insights in your customers, how to negotiate a high value offer for your business, and how to excite your employees about the acquisition. Here to share with you his incredible story is Mark Wright. Enjoy. Mark Wright, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. John, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Tell me the origin story of Climb Online. How did you get into this business? Oh my God. Well, I'll give you the condensed, shortish version. Climb Online was an idea I had uh, growing up. As a young boy, I always wanted to be a business owner. I just wanted to be rich and I wanted to own a business. And I think it all started like my mum and dad owned small businesses. And I'm from a very small town in Australia. I now live in the UK. But when I was growing up, I'd listen to my parents speaking at the dinner table, how they're going to pay the wages, how they're going to pay the rent, how they run their businesses every day. And I just loved business. I loved hearing about it. I loved the challenges. But there was almost so much stress around their businesses. And so my goal came from I want to grow up, own a business that makes me money, and I can fix my parents' stress, which was a bit of a strange goal um, <laughs> as a young man. But that was that was where the sort of idea came from. But fast forward to 2012, I was backpacking around the world. I landed in London in the UK. Um, and uh, I started working at a huge digital marketing agency here in the UK, 500 employees, 70 offices. But they were a really unethical company. The way they treated their staff was bad. The way they treated their customers was bad. So like most entrepreneurs, I sort of was thinking, I can do this better. I can, I've, I can do this business better than they're doing it. So I put together a business plan. I took it to some banks. But because I was a foreigner here, they wouldn't give me a business loan. Well, quite understandably, I had no record, let's say. 
Um, so I took an unconventional funding route and I went on a TV show called The Apprentice, which um, is familiar from the Donald Trump version in the uh, US, but this is a big show on the BBC here in the UK. The boss is called Alan Sugar. And in 2014, I was one of 75,000 people that tried out for the show, got onto the show. It was huge at the time, over 7 million views per episode. And I went from 75,000 onto the 20, onto the program. Eventually, after 14 weeks, I won the show. And the prize was an investment of £250,000 into a business that you create. And the business I created was my digital marketing agency, Climb Online, which I owned in partnership with Alan Sugar, Lord Sugar here in the UK, um, which over the last eight and a half years became one of the top digital marketing agencies in the UK. Uh, we serve in customers like Emirates, TikTok, um, right up to some household names, down to your household builders and plumbers. And uh, yeah, so... A young boy from Australia, from a small town, came to the UK, started a digital marketing agency, went on a TV show, and now I'm on Build to Sell Radio. So the journey's <laughs> complete, John. Uh, yeah, you were leading up to Build to Sell Radio with 7 million viewers on BBC. Yeah, I get that. I, get that. I, really, I really appreciate that. What was it like? I mean, I guess I'd, I'd be curious to know what it was like to work with Alan Sugar in The Apprentice in the context of recording the show and then eventually, you know, working with him? Well, it was fascinating because number one, when I came from um, Australia to the UK, I had no idea who he was, which um, to English people is crazy. And he hates when I say that. Um, <laughs> he's a super, super famous person in the UK. He's super, super one of the richest men in the UK as well. He owned Tottenham Hotspur Football Club, a big computer company here. Um, so he's like, him and Richard Branson are like the two most well-known businessmen in the UK. So when I say I didn't know who he was, probably shows you about where I was coming from. But when I got involved in The Apprentice and working with him, all I wanted was the money to start my company. I didn't really understand how powerful having someone on your board like that would be having his connections, having him for when we got into legal disputes or particularly when we get on to coming to selling. I didn't understand the power of the people that you have on your board or advisors and all of this stuff. So I always say now is really, if you, when I was a young man, 24, if you offered me the £250,000 investment or his mentorship, I would have taken the money. Fast forward to today and the stuff and the journey I've been on, I would leave the 250 grand and I would just take him as a mentor because what I learned from just sitting in his boardroom, discussing the deals, meeting his advisors, meeting his legal team, accounting team, the, those connections alone are worth millions, not hundreds of thousands, millions. And um, it just taught me how to think as a businessman, taught me how to think as a, as a CEO, taught me how to think as a bit more as a, a leader of my employees. So I just think I learned by being a fly on the wall just as much as the direct mentoring. But his work ethic was astounding. His deals that he was doing were mind-blowing. Um, and the respect I got by having someone like that in my business was really catapulted it quite quickly forward. So it was a very positive experience for me. You mentioned his deal-making was astounding. Can you give listeners a sense of maybe a tactic he used in creating a deal, uh, a strategy he employed 
something that 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 you learned from him about structuring a deal? Um, just his approach to. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear on this. Uh, on the on knock the, yourself out <laughs> on the show here. So I'll give you I'll give you an um an, an idea in the sales process that really helped me with my deal. So basically, we got to a point where, and I believe you to sell a company, you've really got to want to sell it. You've got to want to sell it as the seller, and the buyer has to want to buy it because it just gets too tense at times for it not to work if you've not got two willing parties. Uh, and I didn't know that going in, to be frank with you. But there was one point he called me when there was some emails flying around and he said, I want you to go in and I want you to say to the people who are buying, fuck off, deals off. I want you to throw the deal off the table. He said, because it's getting a bit too arduous and they're getting a bit too much power over us. So I want you to just walk away from the deal and I want you to use those words. And I literally was in shock. I was like, are you sure? Like, I'm about to lose the most money I've ever seen. <laughs> so I, I was a bit scared. And he's like, just do it. And sure enough, just like a manual, it worked perfectly. They came back after two days, agreed to the terms that we said. And I think no matter what you do in business, experience is unbeatable. I mean, this guy has sold over 50 companies. This was my wow. first sale. So, you know, and we're talking about he sold companies for billions and hundreds of millions. So my deal was, you know, fart in the wind stuff for him. But for me, it was a massive, uh, a massive thing. But I think the biggest thing I learned just sitting around in his boardroom was just when they talked about 25 million, let's buy that for 25 million, let's sell that for 80 million. It was just numbers flying around. And it really showed me that there is no difference to doing an 80 million deal or an 8 million pound or $8 million deal. The paperwork's the same, the process is the same, the accountants and lawyers are the same. So really, if you're gonna be doing business and thinking, just thinking big and doing it anyway, because it's pretty much the same process. And going into this, I didn't understand that. So that was, a, that was really what I gleaned from working with him is, listen, it's possible for anyone at any level. You've just gotta believe you, you can do that. So your deal with him was 250,000 pounds in return for what percentage of equity? 50%. Five zero. So Five. you are tied at the hip. You guys are equal partners. And what was the structure of the legal terms? Uh, did you have, because a lot of 50-50 partnerships would have like a shotgun agreement. I'm not sure what they call it in the UK, but effectively the rights, each of you would have the rights to sort of make an offer to buy each other out. Did you have sort of a shotgun clause or how, you know, how were the terms structured with him? It was a very restrictive agreement. I will, I will say that because when I signed up to it um, with the BBC and with him, I was young, I was broke. £250,000 was an unbelievable amount of money. I didn't own a business. Owning a business sounded amazing. So I just sort of signed the uh, agreement. And then as the years went on, I realized just how restrictive that agreement was. But the shotgun um, clause was in there and I could go to him or he can go to me at any stage. And we can buy each other shares out at a, at a fair market value, but we get first refusal to one another. Um, however, what I will say is he was silent in running the business in terms of the staff and customers. I was the CEO and the 50% shareholder. He was the chairman of the board. So I ran the business day to day and we would spend one day a month together working at a board level. Um, so and initially he was very hands on, particularly with me what I was doing, how the business was running. As we got going and as the success of the company climbed, he kind of 
got it that I knew that what I was doing and he left it to me. He slowly eased away just to the board meeting uh, or a board level where it was sort of more weekly initially. That's super helpful. What, in what way was it restrictive? Um, I, I wasn't able to make purchases over a certain amount. Um, it was about, it got to about 5,000 pounds, but initially it was like 1,500 pounds. So if I needed to make, you know, any equipment purchases or venue purchases for events or big hires, I had to take it to the board and I'm talking for pretty small stuff and initially fine. But as I really knew what I was doing eight years into the journey, going to the board for approval about computers is pretty annoying, right? Because I've got a lot to get on with in my day-to-day operation. And I really got to a point where 50% equity tied up in my um, company with a silent-ish investor was a lot because as the company grew to sort of 10 million plus turnover, I had key employees coming to me asking for equity. And they were very good employees, but part of my agreement was I couldn't give equity away. And the only option then was to um, either buy him out and give that equity away, but then not have him as an in, as, as an investor or lose those employees. So the agreement over time, particularly as the company got more successful, became really restrictive. That is super helpful and, and sage advice for anybody partnering, in particular with someone who's at a different stage in life, different stage of wealth. There is this sort of weird power dynamic when somebody very rich invests in your company. There's a natural like imbalance of power there, in particular if there's a shotgun. So that's, that's really sage advice. Thank you for sharing that. So when was the last time you had an employee make a mistake that ended up impacting a customer? Stop mistakes before they happen. With VidGuide, your video-based instructions pop up directly into the software your employees use. From Salesforce to QuickBooks and from Bamboo HR to HubSpot, if you use it to run your business, VidGuide integrates with it. As a Built to Sell listener, you can grab a free 14-day trial at vidguide.com slash free. Talk to me a little bit about the company itself. So it was a digital marketing agency. I think most people understand what digital marketing agencies do. Uh, search engine optimization, digital campaigns, PPC, all that kind of stuff. How are you guys different? That's a r- really good question. Well, I got into the game. They say be first, cheapest, or you know, have, have, have a different type of US, US, uh, USP. So I was very early in the game. When I started doing Google AdWords and SEO, it was Google had just came out. I was back in the day with the yellow pages, if you remember those, and and it went to Google. So I was one of the first doing it, which made me uh, a bit of an expert at the time. But with with Climb Online, what made us really unique was, I must admit, first of all, the biggest issue in digital marketing is trust. A lot of people now know they need digital advertising, they need marketing, but they've tried someone, let's say someone in India or uh, around the world, those people that email you on LinkedIn and, and email all day, and it just hasn't worked. They've underpaid, they haven't got the results, and now they put all digital marketing in one basket. What worked for us is as soon as I went on that TV program, I was now a trusted source. I got so much attention from that show in terms of the viewership. And the fact that Alan Sugar had picked me as his winner out of thousands and thousands of contestants gave me trust. The CEO of Google was also at my presentation when I presented to Alan Sugar. 
and said to Alan, if he didn't hire me, they would. And this was on <laughs> national TV. So I've got the CEO of Google saying that. I've got Alan Sugar investing in me. So I got a lot of trust. That let me give customers my experience. Uh, and I think coming back to, I didn't understand how important it was to be known in business, hence why I do so many podcasts or speaking or whatever. I was the same guy with the same ability before I went on the TV. The only thing that changed was the amount of people who knew who I was after I went on the TV and my business completely changed. It completely changed. So in the early days, you know, you were parlaying your personal brand equity that you'd built on the show to win clients. A hundred percent. At what point, and maybe it, I'd be curious to know, did you, did you start to become concerned that your personal brand equity was not accruing to your company and that you were building a business that was dependent on you that you'd never be able to sell without personally agreeing to some nine-year earnout or something like that? Like, did you, did you start to think about, man, I got to start transferring this personal equity to something bigger? Uh, not soon enough. Um, initially, my goal was just to survive. Um, the first two years of the business was brutal. I mean, I was copying it from all angles just in terms of survival. Uh, because the company was relatively famous from the show, the level of scrutiny from the media was significant. I was getting trolled on social media. I was getting hacked from other digital marketing agencies. I wasn't really liked in the community of digital marketing because I was sort of the first famous SEO guy in the country. Um, people really didn't like me and I didn't understand why, but it was just because I was well known. I remember there's a famous um, SEO conference here called Brighton SEO. And I got booed onto the stage, which was, I, I've been booed off the stage before, but never booed going on. And it, the reputation was that I was wow. unfairly successful because I got my success from a TV show. Um, so that was a new element. I had to overcome all of those obstacles. But you're 100% right. As the business got more successful, we started to make money. We started to sign up some really nice brand customers. I realized that they were signing up because of me and because of Alan Sugar. And I also realized I was doing the vast majority of the selling end of the implementation work. And if I was ever going to sell this business or ever have a chance of not killing myself from overworking, I needed to step back from the day-to-day -day and from the forward-facing side of the business. Otherwise, I just not, I wasn't a business owner. I'd really just got myself the worst job ever. Um, I was self-employed doing all of the work. And I think everyone learns that lesson, but it's just at what point? And I was probably later than most, to be honest. Interesting. Interesting. I'd be curious to know specifically, and again, I think everybody listening to this will be will be nodding their head at that idea of, of just the, the sheer scramble of the first few years and then the attempts to make the business less dependent on them personally. And so I'd just be curious, what worked? What tactics did you use to make the business? And again, I'm looking for something fairly specific and actionable. Did you use that that made your business less dependent on Mark, the celebrity entrepreneur? The, the biggest thing was the types of customers we went after. It's a very fickle type of customer that signs up to a business because of who owns the business. You want customers who want results and they don't care whether it's Joe Bloggs or Mark Wright running that business, they're getting actionable, tangible results. So it was one going after the right types of customers, understanding what they wanted and delivering on that. The second thing was hiring the right team 
around me. I I made the fundamental mistake that I think a lot of people make, but I certainly made it is with that initial investment I got, I hired cheap staff because I was worried I was going to use the 250 really quickly. My first few hires I got really, really wrong because I underpaid. I didn't buy an expertise. I relied on my own expertise and I hired cheap to give myself support. And all I realized that was doing was reputational damage and creating more work for me. So the, the biggest two things I did was increase the, the, the salary and the type of person I was going after. I headhunted some great management from other agencies that had been successful. And I changed the type of customer we were going after. It meant in the initial term, we signed up less customers, but our churn rate decreased significantly. And I had to do less work over time. And that really was a light bulb moment. And as the years went on, I was doing less selling, less implementation work. And really, I described my role in the agency as chief checker. I was never going to sell a deal or I was never going to implement the work. My job was to check things constantly, meet with the management, meet with the customers and check how they're getting on. If I stop checking and I start doing, it was the wrong type of stuff. And that process, the staff started to learn, the customers started to learn. It took me the longest to learn it, um, but I got there in the end. Isn't that interesting? You know, I've heard the old expression, inspect what you expect. It sounds like that's a different, chief checker is a different play on the same kind of principle. But yeah, that idea. Tell me more about how you identified the right type of customer, because you listed that as your your one of two strategies. Um, Like, was there an industry that you found particularly good at buying the company and not Mark Wright? Was it a size of company? Was it any other, anything else you can like point our listeners to uh, if they're trying to find their right customers? Well, the first thing I did was want to identify the right types of customers because when I first started, I just sell to anyone. My staff used to joke that if someone came in and tried to buy the desks, I'd sell it to them. Um, (laughs) And I'd never actually sat down and thought, who are our customers? How much are they paying us? You know, what do they look like? So the first thing I did was implement um, timesheet software and saw how much time we're spending on customers, how much they're paying us and how much margin we're making per customer. We then discovered that our most successful type of customer was businesses that were owner-managed, i.e. where the, 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 the main principal CEO was a majority shareholder in their business. We discerned that they spent the most with us and had the longest retention with us. We hmm. found that bigger companies, Fortune 500s or whatever like that, they uh, had good budgets but were very fickle at the renewal point. And smaller businesses couldn't accompany the budget for us to make good margin. So that was a newsflash moment. So then we were able to go and create a list of people who looked like our most successful customers and just target those. We found that we had to do less work. We made more margin and our churn. At the point I sold the company, our churn rate was one of the lowest of any agency in Europe. What Um, was it? It was under 2%. Per year? uh, Per year. So if I'm understanding, you signed up contracts to do PPC contracts, SEO contracts, and these renewed at 98% effectively. Which is unbelievable in our, wow. in our sector. Now, if I turn that on its head, when I first started, we were churning nearly 50% of our business in the first three years per year. We were having to sign up half the agency again year on year. But we were just selling without realizing what we were selling. 
Uh, and it is actually really in the agency game, not number of customers, right types of customers getting results. And if you can do that and get them spending the right level, the biggest issue with digital marketing is people don't spend enough money. They're not educated enough in the process. The budget is too small, then it doesn't work. So now you've got an unhappy customer that spent a bit of money, but's really unhappy. If you spend the right amount of money, you'll get the right results. But I had to learn that again, the, the, the hard way through churning a lot of customers, a lot of employees, a bit of reputational damage. Um, but these are lessons I'll, I'll take on in my business career. But understanding your customer is just critical because I, once I got that, it was easy from there, really. I find it really fascinating that it was an owner-operated company where the majority shareholder was still in the company. I think that's a really fascinating insight. Talk to me a little bit about how you recruited some of these more senior people. Because again, a lot of listeners are, 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 are sort of bearing the damage of recruiting new or young or underpaid staff because that's all they could afford. But maybe they're at a point where they can start to afford more, you know, more experienced people. But those people don't come cheap and they don't leave a good thing easily. What would, what, how did you convince them to join your business? What was your pitch? So I, as I said in my shareholders agreement, I can't give away equity, which really yeah. hurt me. So I went back to the drawing board and I thought, what can I, what can I do? So I took a plan to Alan Sugar and I said, what if I give each senior employee or each senior manager their own PL, department PL, with a profit share model, i.e., they get a percentage of any profit they drive in, in their department that's clear on the outset, which he signed off. And that was game changing because I was able to go and headhunt from top agencies and say, listen, you know who we are, you know who my business partner is. These are our numbers of this department. I need you to come in and take that 10X for me. And if you do, I can give you 20% of the upside, 25% of the upside. And I was able to go out with a bit more in my arsenal in terms of financial leverage if I couldn't give away um, equity. So what we did with our management is sit down and target some top industry professionals. We sort of made a a hit list, let's call it. And we just went out and I went out personally for the top, top people. I messaged them on LinkedIn myself. I sat the interviews myself and I was able to get sort of three or four key people in the agency, which just moved the needle completely. And I think if I think about my biggest learning as an agency owner was that key people in the management team in that sort of founding circle is imperative to the company's success. And also when it came to selling, the biggest thing I was able to sell is, listen, for the last two years, I've done nothing. These people here, you can interview them, meet them during the due diligence stage. You can uh, interview them relentlessly. They are running the business. And the best news was is when they did interview them and meet with them and spend time in the office, they saw that they were running the business. Um, and I just had to, I had to understand myself that spending money to make money in the long run and release me out of the business was the best investment I could do at the time. How did you adjudicate the bun fights? Because gosh, if you put someone on SEO and someone on PPC, and I mean, you know, the, the clients are obviously clients of the agency. Emirates would need PPC and they'd need SEO as an yeah. example, or TikTok or whatever. How did you adjudicate? I mean, like, tell it to me straight. You must have had a ton of arguments internally where these, you know, fiefdoms were, were warring over, over each other. No? 
Well, the first thing I did was make one person responsible for each client, which worked really good until that person left and took the clients with them. <laughs> um, so then, so my strategy one was each person manages a client and then they have the work done behind the scenes. Then, you know, let Joe's managing that person. Joe goes, starts his own agency, steals Emirates. Yeah. Okay, that's a problem. So now what do we do? We need multiple touch points so Joe can't steal Emirates. So what, what we then did was have each team in the background doing their element of work, pitching in at certain points, and a client management team. And at, at any one time, three people speaking to the client about different things, and then one internal management meeting about that client based on retainer size. That meant that we managed the internal fights, the infighting, and we had multiple touch points so it, people couldn't steal the customer, let's say. So there's, again, experience being the teacher is um, a key thing, but nothing's without issue. I found that doing internal meetings regularly, whether that's per team, per department, per management, those regular meetings solved a lot of issues. So my two main meetings was our directors meeting on a Monday, management meeting on a Tuesday, and we had an all staff on a Monday town hall as well. We could really cover a lot of ground in those in those meetings. That's super helpful. How many staff did you have by the time you sold the company? 130. 130. You, you had 130 people at Climb Online. Yeah. Got it. Got it. So this is a big team. It, it was getting up there quite quickly. But what was really weird is it felt harder at sort of 15 uh, or 20 to me. And as we got better management and the team and the infrastructure grew, it kind of got easier because the, the, the number of people I was talking to as the CEO actually got less. I sort of spoke to the same amount of people, but they spoke to their people. We were really well structured in terms of sort of management layout, internal meetings, and the way it filtered down. So I didn't feel like I was managing 130 people in the end at all. Got it. That's that's an interesting insight. What triggered you to want to sell the business? Was there some sort of event or something happened? Uh I started about year three or four of the business, getting all these letters in the post and calls and contacts on email and LinkedIn saying, hey, I'd like to buy your business. I'd like to buy your business. And I never really entertained them because one, I was enjoying running the business. Two were really small and I understood that the valuation would probably be not as well as I was getting paid, frankly. Um, and then after about year five, I entertained one. I, I went through the process and I sort of went, sat down for some meetings. We sent them some financials. We did some NDAs, all of that stuff. And it went horribly. It, it just didn't go well. They were sort of pitching like a uh, like an owner finance type thing. And it was sort of, I, I didn't know what was going on really. So I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to need help. We're going to need the right team around us. And it's going to take longer than six months to a year. It's probably going to take a couple of years. So I took it to the board, said, listen, I'm thinking about selling the business. Um, one, because it releases us out of this shareholding agreement that's pretty heavy. So um, it would allow me to either buy back into the business and be a part of it on a more even structure to tie in uh, better staff for a longer period of time or release me to do other stuff. And they agreed. And from that point, it took us, it took us sort of, 18 months to sell the business from there. Who was on the board at the time? Uh, so Alan Sugar, myself, and um, uh, our financial director. We had um, a legal ad advisor and another accountant as well. So it was a pretty small board. 
Got it. And what was Alan's reaction? Because he'd funded you as a kid. I mean, you you know, like that, that it's like, you know, dad asking uh, or the kid asking dad for the keys to the car or uh, saying, I'm going to leave. I'm not coming home. Like, like that's kind of a, is that like breaking up with a girlfriend? What does that feel like? Uh, he's pretty pragmatic. He, he, he said to me, listen, if you, if that's what you want, we can do it. And he basically said that when we started the business, he, his advice to me was you, whenever you start a business, you always plan to sell it in five years. And I was like, why? And he said, because you'll put the right structures in place. Even if you get five years down the line and you don't want to sell it, you'll have the right management processes and structures in place. So he's like, whenever you start, you aim to sell in five years and then you make the decision. And that stuck with me from the moment I started the company till five years in when I did decide to go ahead and sell it because, you know, he sort of drummed into me the fact of you you shouldn't be doing the working. You are the checker. You are the moderator. You are the management. Like they called it, referred to it as the orchestra. You're the conductor of the orchestra. And your job is to do the conducting and watch the costs. He drilled that into me constantly. Um, so it, it'll stay with me for the rest of my my life, those little lessons. But when I took it to him, he said, listen, it's up to you, but you're going to have to run the sale. And he said, and it's hard. It's going to be tough and you're going to, you know, there's going to be tears uh, and it's going to be ugly. But if you can get it done and you agree to the numbers, you can sell it. So, did, yeah. What did you at the board level think the company could be worth? Did you have any sense of what it would be worth or what multiple of earnings or how it would be valued? Any, any insight there? Um, no. You're I, laughing. Why are you laughing? Uh, because I had a number in my head that I thought would be nice for me and it had no mathematical bearing or uh, EBITDA. What was the number? It was what I got. <laughs> um, and it, it just made no sense other than I was running on the treadmill at the gym and I thought that would be enough for me to go and uh, that's what I got. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've got this magic number in your mind of yes. what you would be happy with, but presumably the board would have had a perspective on what it was worth. I mean, Alan's a, obviously a very experienced guy. He would have some semblance of how this kind of company would be valued, no? That, exactly right. So he took me through, and it was fantastic. He took me through some stories of companies he'd sold and how they got to the valuation. And he basically, I'd never heard the word earn out. I'd never heard, you know, EBITDA. These were all new things coming to me, which sounds crazy to say that as an eight and a half year CEO, but when we got to the point of selling, a lot of these conversations were new. I, uh, due diligence, I'd never heard before. A de minimis basket, never heard of that before. Now, all of these things, right? So I'm hearing all these new words and it was, it was great. But um, we sat down and he, he said what his minimum number would be, what his minimum expectation was. And that was about four times EBITDA, uh, four to five times EBITDA. He said he would accept as his minimum for his shares um, his 50% shareholding to go. So I think they set out their stall as this is the minimum. You can go and try and get whatever you want. But if you bring us back a deal, anything over that amount, we will accept. The average um, digital marketing agency in the UK sells for an average between two and three times EBITDA at the moment. So we were going for five and we got nine and a half. Wow. Wow. Well, that begs the question, what did you do to get nine and a half? We stayed in the market a lot longer than I would have 
hoped. So we we had a lot of meetings and we we had about three offers prior to the one that we accepted that were uh, weren't great. Um, they had long earnouts. They had um, really big restrictions on me personally. Um, and they had some funky deal metrics, um, you know, that, that, that were built into the deal. So we just kept pushing it back, staying in the market for the right deal. Um, we worked with good advisors. We brought really, really, really strong advisors in off Lord Sugar's uh, advice. He basically said that you need to talk with and have the team of people that are doing these deals regularly, doing good deals, uh, will give you advice. They know people who are um, in trade and both PE that are doing deals regularly and understand the process. Because if you get, particularly with small people who are approaching us, they'll want to do funky stuff because the, the level of money is outside of their potential. So they try to build in all of this stuff to be clever just because they can't afford it. When you do business with serious advisors and serious companies, they don't build in all of the nonsense because they can afford the deal. And I found that was really valuable um, for me as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the the previous the deals that you chose not to accept. Most of our listeners would be familiar with the term earnout, uh, where you know you, you get some money up front, but then there's a target, and it's three or five years in the future, and you've got to kind of scramble around trying to hit that target. And if you do, there's an extra payment or more. You mentioned some other funky stuff, and I'm just really curious about what other funky stuff you came across in these offers. So can you be more like specific about what sort of funky stuff you saw? Yeah, so um, one of my uh, business heroes is a guy called Kerry Packer, who's a really rich Australian business magnate who's long passed away now. But he, um, I, I've read about all of his deals and his sales and how he got his sales across the line. And he used to get a number in his head and he'd say, right, this is the deal, this is the number, and we shake hands on it, and I'm out the door. So in my head, rightly or wrongly, I had a number in my head, and I didn't want to do an earnout because to me, I felt like I'd be sitting in my company and I wouldn't really be the boss anymore. I'd be this guy that's sort of floating around my own company, and I wouldn't have the same passion and motivation as I did when I was the owner. Uh, and I felt like once you agreed to do a sale, I want to go. I want to get my money and go because I should have rightly or wrongly built up a business that should be able to achieve and hit its targets based on the infrastructure that I've built. So my job came to showing and proving that infrastructure. That was my theory anyway. So I was very strict when I sat down in the early uh, meetings and I had lots and lots of sort of um, little um, networking meetings with people who are interested, let's call them. And they would they'd get the IM, they'd get the teaser document, they'd get the IM, then they'd request a meeting with me. And I must have sat 40 of those meetings. I must have sat really? 40. And by the end, I was, I'd had it up to the back teeth with those meetings because it felt like going on first dates and pretty much all of them didn't work out. And you knew really quickly. You'd sit down in those meetings and you'd think, they haven't got enough money or I really don't like this person, or they're going to make me do all sorts, jump through all sorts of hoops for this for this deal. So what I do really quickly is set out my stall in those meetings. So I would say, I'm not doing an earnout. It's just, it is off the table. And if that's something that you're not open for, we might as well end the call now. And the minimum expectation price is 
X. So I just get it all out there in that first meeting to stop any of the getting into a month down the line or to a heads of term stage and them saying, we didn't know you wanted to do an earn out and we're going to start chipping away at this price and all of this sort of stuff. Of course, we understand that price gets chipped away at and things come in. But I think you've got to be, I had to be really clear on what my expectations were and what my non-negotiables um, were. So I sent it out and with the company who bought it, they said, okay, we understand that, but you are a big name in the business community. You really are tied in, in a name with the company. So our minimum expectations would be that you stayed on the board as a non-exec for a year, uh, that you rolled over some of your equity into the deal and um, showed your commitment in other ways to the company. And I thought that was really sensible for them. And I thought it was a really good solution because I'm still involved from a namespace. I still attend the board meetings. I still go in and have drinks and see um, the, any key customers or staff because I'm still a small shareholder. But I don't have to do the day-to-day -day running and feel like I'm sitting on the outside of my own company. So that was a brilliant solution that they brought in after I set out my store. Such an interesting insight. And I've got some follow-on questions uh, associated with, with, with that sort of approach. Because I, I think in particular services businesses, they, they're almost always an earnout. Like as you said, there are 40 conversations and virtually everyone would have had some request for an earnout. We want you to stay more. Uh, we don't want to buy your business. We want to invest in your business and yeah. help you grow and help you take it to the next level. Yeah. Like all that sort I of heard, garbage. If I heard that once, I heard it 40 <laughs> times. And like they right. would say like, why haven't you done a management buyout and all of this sort of stuff? Like, what do you mean you're not prepared to do this? What you know, all of this sort of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so fascinating. How much of your equity did you roll? Uh, 2%. Just 2%. Okay, so relatively minor. Yeah. Uh, amount of your consideration you rolled. Yeah, and I put a bit more. I re uh, I reinvest some of the money as uh, into the company, into the bigger company, the the company that bought my my company, and and the non exec part. So I'm a small shareholder um, and uh, and a non exec, but I, I I still am involved. I get the accounts board meetings, all of that stuff. Got it. Got it. Some people listening to your approach, so you sit down with, with a potential acquirer and say, look, I'm not going to do an earnout. I'm not going to do, uh, you know, this is my minimum number. Um, with regards to the earnout, like, how did you sort of justify that? Because again, I, I'm just putting my acquirer's hat on and say, well, how much does Mark believe in this business if he wants to run out the door as soon as he you know, passes over the keys? Like what, give, give listeners the language that worked that made people nod and say, yeah, I guess that is kind of reasonable. Because a lot of people hear, like I'm not doing, or a lot of acquirers would hear, I'm not doing an out. And what they hear is this guy doesn't believe in the company. This guy's you know, running out of a burning building. It's about to collapse. How did you kind of get them over that? Um, I like to think I'm a really honest operator. So I sort of sat them down and said, listen, I'm a hard on my sleeve type person. And I feel if once I'm the CEO that sold my shares and I'm here on either a small shareholding and I'm running your business, my motivation is going to fall over because that's the type of person I am. I'm a sort of 100% on, 100% off. I love the company. I love the employees. But the truth is 
I've not been running this business for two years. I've got a great management team. I have great infrastructure in place. And I want you to rigorously test that in the due diligence. And if you feel the people I've got running this company, I have a managing director, an ops director, finance director. If you feel they're not doing it effectively, don't buy the business. But you're not buying me because either this year or next year or a year after, I'm leaving anyway. So why don't I just leave now? And you make sure that the infrastructure is good because it's going to be your infrastructure at some point. And if it's not, don't buy it. And I just was, I don't want to say arrogant. I was just really direct in my approach is I've built a great business. I have great people. I haven't been doing anything for two years. Go and test it for three months. And if you like it, buy it. And the guy and the team that bought it, they they believed me and they went in. They, they absolutely thrashed the staff in due diligence. They interviewed them. They came in and sat in the office for a week and did all of these stuff. And at the end, um, he came and gave me some feedback that it was the less, the least thing that ever picked up in due diligence um, as a, in terms of cleanliness of the financials and the infrastructure. And post-deal, we're now seven months post-deal, he said that it's the best runway hitting their budget of any of the 21 deals the purchaser has ever done, um, the most successful that they've done. Amazing. These employees of yours, per the Allen Sugar Agreement, did not have equity. So how did you get them on side with the process of selling the business, going through the due diligence, answering all the litany of questions without any upside? Uh, uh, you're good at this. You're good at this, John. You've done this before. Um, so we had to, first of all, we had to sell the opportunity of, of of a bigger business buying it. So we sort of sat down and said, what is our strategy with our employees? Because they're going to feel like they're getting shafted, really. The owners are leaving. Is there something wrong with the company? Are their jobs safe? All of this stuff. So we sat down with the potential buyer we, with our board and we said, what do we want to tell the employees? What's appropriate? What's true and accurate? And the truth is that, that a much bigger business was buying us. So there's going to be uh, overseas offices, there's going to be opportunities for promotion, management roles, etc. So we painted the picture of the business plan from the potential buyer. This is their plan. This is what they want for the company. And this is what it could mean for you and your role. That was really effective. Anyone super, super key, we, we, we gave them a financial incentive. If the, if the deal goes through, you'll be paid. Uh, and the buyer did some incentives on their side. So the, the really key people made money on the sale and on the acquisition and did really well. Got it. Got it. The other question around the very direct upfront 40 meetings here, no worn out, here's my minimum price. Some people would hear that and think, oh, Mark sort of left money on the table because he put a ceiling onto which he would sell his business for by putting his minimum number effectively. That's the maximum number that an acquirer might hear. Did you fear that you were uh, somehow putting some sort of limit on the value of your company by putting your number on the table? A little bit. I, I felt a little bit like I was doing that, but I combed a lot of uh, business websites, sale websites, and previous deals in the market that had been done for agencies. So I had a gut feeling on what that number should look like for a good business. And I got above that number. So I'm comfortable with where we ended up. And I think 
for me, I made a, a number in my mind that was my minimum number. Anything over that was fine. Um, any, anything under that was unacceptable. And as long as I left that deal happy um, and felt I got paid for the hard work I did, it was acceptable. And, and the same with, with Alan Sugar. I think you can always lay there and think, what if this happened? What if we signed that contract? What if I'd said that? Could I have got an extra 500000 or whatever? I think at the, as long as the staff are left in a good place and those relationships are good. The reputation of the company is intact and it still looks like it should and how I want it to look because a lot of my personal reputation is tied up in that company. So it needs to be in safe hands to go forward because if it goes under tomorrow, it's still going to reflect on myself and Alan Sugar. So yeah. that was really important. Um, and um, the fact that I can sleep at night, uh, you know, knowing I said and, and conducted myself in a in an honourable way, so I'm really comfortable with with how it actually resulted and the numbers we got. Did you sign a uh, in in North America? They call it um, uh, I forget. It's like a likeness and the the ability to basically use your name name and likeness. I think it's contract. Basically, it's the it's it's where you as the seller with a personal brand like Alan Sugar, like yourself, would would entitle the new owners to use your name in marketing the business for a period of time and return for a fee. Did you sign any sort of deal no, like that? No, that no, they can kind of, and that's sort of really what they're buying in effect because Climb Online um, is a really reputable name in the digital marketing space in the UK because it's so heavily tied with Alan Sugar and, and myself as the apprentice winner. So what they were buying in effect was almost a license as long as that company trades to sort of say founded by Mark Wright and Alan Sugar, as long as the company trades, we're not paid any residual license above the small shareholding that we've retained and um, any non-exec fees or whatever. So in, in that respect, it's a tremendous deal for them because they're buying a license to use the apprentice, Alan Sugar and my name for life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really interesting uh, from their perspective, for sure. I, I have to ask you a few questions before I let you go. Are you up for a quick lightning round of, uh, of questions? Of course. Deal I answer? love your questions, John. They're, they're, they're uh, very detailed. Okay. What is the slimiest trick? And you kind of alluded to it earlier, but maybe you pick another one if you want. What, what is the slimiest trick a prospective acquirer tried to play on you? Oh, I had I've seen so many. I have seen I've seen so many. I think that the one that's the nastiest is uh approaching the staff. Uh even though we've signed NDAs, we've done all of this going to the staff behind our behind our back and really trying to take they said this in the meetings, was that actually accurate? So we had a few uh potential acquirers contacting staff on LinkedIn, which is a big no-no, but still happens. So just making sure our story was our house was in order before we went out because you never know what's going to come out in the wash. Biggest mistake you made personally during the process of selling your company? Getting too friendly on WhatsApp with potential um, acquirers, going away from advisors, going away from legal and accounting and making that relationship a bit too friendly. Tell me more. What happened? Uh, so a couple of people, um, acquirers and stuff, um, realized that the lawyers and advisors were 
protecting me and, and, and the board, so to speak. So they bypassed that infrastructure, got my mobile number and all of that and started building up a relationship uh, with me under the guise of, you know, getting the deal done and all of this stuff. But quite quickly, it turns to we're not doing that in the SPA or can we take that out of the heads of terms? And all of these advisors that you're paying a king's ransom to are now ineffective. Um, and I think I learned the hard way that you employ good people, let them do their job. Just don't get involved. Just let them run the deal. Be willing to do the deal, but use the team that you've employed to use the deal. Because when I started to get involved, it really got messy quickly. That is worth the price of admission right there. Got great advice. And of course, every advisor wants direct every uh, every buyer wants direct access to the owner so they can sort of get their favors uh, and, and get the kind of temperature of the relationship, but uh, but you, you hire advisors for a reason, so use them. Such good advice. I've heard a lot of um, people describe selling a business kind of like emotional roller coasters, like very high highs and very low lows. What was your lowest emotional ebb during the process of, of selling your business? Um, I, was, I got stressed to a point that I can only compare to when I started the business. And I hoped I'd never feel that level of stress again. And I said to my advisors at the end, I don't know how you do this for a living. I can't believe you <laughs> sell and buy companies for a living because we finished and I felt like I needed to sleep for a week. There was one night where I came home and we worked pretty much all night and all day. And I got home at like, must have been eight, nine o'clock at night. And I fell asleep on the sofa and I've never done that before. I'm sort of quite structured. And my partner woke me, she's like, I've never seen you fall asleep on the sofa like that before. I got in, I still had my work clothes on, my laptop was next to me, and I just almost passed out from pure stress. I felt like I'd never experienced that level of work, stress, and just pressure because I felt like there was so much writing on every email, every decision, and we got to a point where it was either going to happen or it wasn't, and every email I was sending felt so, so critical. And... um at now I look back and I love the process, but at the time it just, it really, there was some really low points and it was purely just the stress level was incredible because I felt like if the deal didn't happen, it was going to be my fault. What was the highest point emotionally during the process? I was going to say when the deal was done, but that was a very bittersweet moment because my company was, the vast majority of it was gone out of my control. And, and, and when I got the money, it didn't feel how I thought it was going to feel when I, when I, when I got the money. Um, I think I went away a week later on, on holidays with my dad and I reflected on uh, what I built, the company that I built, the reputation that I built, and more importantly, some of the customers I'd signed up, we won our biggest customer in the company's history the day I left. Um, and it was, a, I can't say the name of the company because of an NDA, but it was one of the biggest companies in the world. And it was unimaginable that starting the company in my laptop, we would have ever got them. So it, there, there was that. And, and my best friend still works in the company and, and, and some of my greatest people I've mentored. So just reflecting on the journey about a week or two after the sale, was really where I felt some joy um, come out of it because I really, and no one told me this, but I went on like a mourning process where you think getting money and selling your company is the goal, then it's gone, you get the money, you don't feel anything. 
And then you don't have a company. I used to get sort of six, 700 emails a day. The first day after the sale, I got like four emails. And this (laughs) sense of like um, what to do with each day and how I was going to restart hit me. And it it was like losing a relative or something like that. And I came out of that and you feel that sense of pride and joy come through. What did your dad say? Uh, he was just, it was brilliant that I built a company from nothing. You know, he's a small business owner himself. And he was so proud of the fact that I went in and came out of that process unscathed um, because he, he he's sort of a big believer. He stayed in his business too long. And I think a lot of a lot of people like my dad, they didn't plan to sell, so they never could sell. And they look at myself and people who did plan to sell and have sold. There's probably a bit of jealousy there, but also some some pride on and admiration of, of what I achieved in the process. Tell me about telling Alan that you got nine and a half times, about double what he was hoping to get. He, when I took him the offer, he said, go and snap their arm off. And he, he used a phrase I'd never heard before. He said, that offer is manna from heaven. And I had to Google what that meant because I'd never heard that um, uh, phrase before. But I thought a guy that, uh, of his stature and well-doing to, you know, to say that means I've probably done a good job um, in the forefront. Um, but he hadn't seen the, the years of 40 meetings. There was a year and a half of 40 meetings before that to get to, get to that point. So he sent me a really nice email after we sold saying that the way I conducted the process was very good, very professional, and the, the conclusion was both good for us and the buyer, and, and um, he thought it was, it was really well done. And after he'd done so many deals, I, I took that as a, a pretty good review. How did you educate yourself about the process of selling a company? I mean, Alan was probably super helpful, but were there other... Uh, other resources that you turn to that you could point our listeners to? Well, I must, I, I, I don't want to blow up your tires here too much, but I listened to your um, podcast. Uh, oh, and that's, that's how great. I found and why, why I'm here today, because I, I, I listened to a couple of episodes of your show and I was, ju- I was in the belly of the beast at the point that I listened and I felt like it wasn't going to happen, the deal, and I felt a bit lost in it. So the, your show is really specific to selling your business, which I found really useful. Um, having the right lawyers was critical because I used a specific legal team that just does acquisitions, and their knowledge was was really amazing. But they got they dragged the deal through some really dark days. Um, and the advisors, uh, I mean, my advisor, he must have blocked me on WhatsApp by now because I was asking all sorts of questions that. I mean, crazy hours, 11, 12 o'clock at night, two o'clock in the morning, Saturday nights. So I think for me, it was finding specific selling resources. I listened to some books on selling. I listened to your podcast as well. And just having a team that had sold businesses and specialized in it, um, because without that, the deal would not have got done. If I tried to do it on myself, I would still be, you know, in the office right now um, because I would have messed it up. I'm a big believer in having some tangible thing to commemorate the win. Did you buy yourself anything? What's what's the trophy associated with this uh, financial success? I booked a ticket to the World Cup in Qatar after um, the sale, so I went and watched Australia, the Socceroos play their group games at the at the FIFA World Cup, um, and I just got back. I love holidays, so I went to Dubai and I went to Qatar, uh, and I, and I just um, did that. So I'm not really into the Lamborghinis and 
all of that sort of stuff. And um, also, I'm, I'm planning what to do next. So I don't want to uh, end up buying a Lamborghini and not being able to buy another business. <laughs> Yeah. So what's coming, like what's coming next? Um, I understand you've got an event coming up July 18th and 19th in London for folks listening that happen to be in the UK. That's, that could be kind of a cool uh, way to meet you. Oh, that would, yes. Um, so uh, right now I've got a really restrictive SPA. So I, I'm restricted from marketing and all of this stuff. So I thought, what can I do in the short term? I thought I'm going to do a one, two day event in London where I talk about how I sold my business, how I scaled up my business and how I got out of there, um, and just also what I've learned from Lord Sugar and The Apprentice and all of that sort of stuff, because I've never really had time to speak about it too much. So I'm going to be doing that. But That's I've been awesome. doing some courses on M&A. Now I'm going to be on the other side of the table, and I'm looking at doing a buy and build um, strategy of using the skills I've learned through selling and marketing to go and buy businesses, maybe two, three, four million in turnover that lack sales, lack marketing, that I can use the capital that I've made from the sale to go and buy multiple businesses. Because I see Lord Sugar as a bit of a mentor hero of mine. And I, watching his family office, they were identifying deals constantly, not properties like most people think, good businesses that lacked accounting, legal, marketing and sales functions. And they attack hard. They go in, they take large equity, they recreate the board. And out of 10 businesses, let's say it's quite a high percentage, six or seven don't work, but three go ballistic. And it's making him fantastic money. So I was like, well, hang on a minute. I've watched that for eight years. How do I identify a deal? How do I identify a business partner? What structures to put in place? I now have a few quid. Why don't I go and do that for myself? So I'm starting that process as we speak. So cool. So where's the best place if, if folks wanted to reach out uh, to you? Is there a website or an email or, or you're a Twitter guy or LinkedIn? What's the best way? Oh, to I'm, you? I'm as a good digital marketing man. I am, um, I'm available on all platforms. So if you just look for Mark Rudd, I'm verified on all platforms. LinkedIn's probably easiest. It comes directly to me. And I'd love to hear from anyone who got value from this or has any questions on, on selling their business or you know, particularly in the digital marketing space, I'm always happy to answer uh, any questions. And I, I, I'm here today because, you know, your show really helped me and I'd like to thank you. But also, I feel that when you have some success as an entrepreneur, you really owe it to help others on that journey, because that's how I've got to here. And, and, and hopefully by listening to someone, how I'll get to the next level as well. Very, very well said, Mark. We will put your LinkedIn profile along with the information about the July 18th, 19th event uh, in the show notes page at builttocell.com. Mark Wright, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. And there you have it for today's interview between John and Mark. If you enjoyed today's episode, then as always, be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If you love this episode, then I would encourage you to share this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would love listening to today's show. Again, special thanks to Kevin Brent for nominating Mark Wright as a guest. Some of the best guests here on Built to Sell Radio have come from nominations just like Kevin. And if you want to nominate someone, again, head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you'll have a chance to nominate someone else or yourself. Another reminder, if you want to watch this full interview, you can do so over at our YouTube channel. I would highly encourage you to head over to YouTube, type in at Built to Sell Radio and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Watching the interview truly helps add a different element to the podcast, which I think you will enjoy.
For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including the two videos of Mark on The Apprentice, you can head over to our show notes page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering, and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you all again next week. 